Creative Babble. Hey, Mr. Abagnale. I'm doing a podcast covering the event. This is audio from my interview with Frank Abagnale in Las Vegas. The interview only lasted around two minutes, but boy, oh boy, he packed a lot into those two minutes. If you watch the video, which I posted on YouTube and TikTok, the con man calmly answers all of my questions. He held his hands together, smiled the entire time. It seemed like he was pleased to talk. Agency of the government help educate law enforcement officers about fraud. In fact, everyone around him just thought it was a normal interview. That is, until I busted out his prison records and waved it in front of his face. But I, I have uh, your prison records right here, and clearly that prison were, card is the smoking gun. It proves without a doubt that he was mostly in prison from the age of 16 to 21, making it impossible to live the extraordinary life he so famously claims. This series is not just a story about a con man who lied about his past experiences. No, it's much bigger than that. This series is about correcting history. You see, for decades now, we've been celebrating this man's life, like he's some sort of hero or something. He's invaded our living rooms in countless TV interviews. He's had Leonardo DiCaprio play him in a movie. John Williams even scored his superhero theme song. And his life has been turned into a Broadway musical, which one review said is an amazing true story with the happy ending we all need. But it turns out that America's favorite con man is really just another petty thief who's never really repaid all the money he stole. But if we zoom out, this is the story of the spread of misinformation, where politicians and other grifters have taken a page out of the Abagnale playbook and learned that if you repeat multiple lies over and over again, most people won't question it. And guess what? You could actually get away with it. Frank claims that he evaded the FBI for five years. They couldn't catch him, even if they tried. Sure, he admits he finally got arrested, but in his version of the story, he came out a hero working undercover for the FBI. I may not believe his account, but I do think he won in the end. The guy's in his mid-70s, lives in a multi-million dollar island home, earns a preschool teacher's salary every time he takes the stage and gives a speech. I mean, he made it. And besides his alleged victims, no one seems to question his success. He fooled us all. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for this meddling kid and his scrappy friend from Belfast. The Irish guy, by the way, is Alan Logan, the author of The Greatest Hoax on Earth. Together, we're on a mission to set the record straight so that when you ask someone if they know who Frank Abagnale is, instead of, uh, it was based on a true story, maybe they'll tell you that it was all made up. Abagnale may have been on the run for the last 50 to 40 years, getting away with the biggest lie of them all, but guess what? We caught him. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else.
Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Hey, Mr. I'm doing a podcast covering the event. I'm going to play the ambush interview in its entirety. And I'm going to interrupt the tape along the way just to point out a few things here and there that you may have missed. Such a transformational story. I mean, it's almost like unbelievable. How did you make that change? I know you talked about it on stage, but we would love to hear it. Um, I was very fortunate, first of all, that uh, after serving time in France and then Sweden and then the United States, uh, after my four-year stint on, uh, in the United States, the federal government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the government. Um, by the way, there was no four-year stint in prison. He spent three months locked up in France and two months in Sweden. And when he returned to the States, he only served two years in a federal penitentiary in Virginia. So not four years, it was more like two years and change. In the United States, the federal government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the government and help educate law enforcement officers about fraud. There's uh, no proof that the federal government ever recruited Abagnale. In reality, he was just hanging out at his children's summer camp stealing camera equipment. And then for some reason that really can't be explained, he got a job at an orphanage posing as a social worker. Abagnale told me in Vegas that working with the FBI wasn't his long-term plan. It wasn't even supposed to last that long fraud. Uh, it was just for the period of my parole, which was about five years, and then that, would, that obligation would end. Uh, when the five years were over, the Bureau asked me to stay on. I said I would stay as long as I was allowed to do other things outside of that, and I've done that for 46 years. So I owe the, the opportunity to them. Now he's claiming to be a federal officer, which is a pretty serious crime if he's lying, by the way. I truly... I don't believe I was a changed person coming out of prison. I, I think that having met my wife, and keep in mind that I had no money, I had no job, I was on federal parole, and I told her about my life and where I was, and I eventually asked her to marry me, and against the wishes of her parents, she did. Uh, she gave me three wonderful sons, seven grandchildren, and that's really what changed my life. It was all about that. Okay, the time for pleasantries has passed. It's time for some hardball questions. One more, one more. Yes. So for six years, you evaded the, the FBI, uh, pretending to be a pilot, a doctor, a professor. But how were you able to do that if you were like sitting in prison the whole time? Oh, snap. I don't think he has a canned response for this one. Like that scene in the other Spielberg film, Indiana Jones, his friendly smile melted right off his bones. No, oh, maybe not that dramatic. 
you know, when this was all, bef- I went to prison for all those things. Going to work with the FBI was after I came out of uh, out of prison. But I, I have uh, your prison records right here, and clearly they were. It took place when you were all uh, supposedly things, doing all, all these things adventures. Came over a period of a period of time, uh, not predicted in the movie. You know, I had nothing to do. I didn't write the book. I didn't make the movie. I didn't have anything to do with the play. Uh, those are people's views of what I did or, or didn't do at that time. You heard right. He had nothing to do with the musical, even though he was at the premiere. And he had nothing to do with the movie, even though he claims he lived with Leonardo DiCaprio for an extended period of time. Oh, by the way, remind me to post that audio later. It's hysterical. And get this. He had nothing to do with the book. The book. The book. His own autobiography that the publisher Penguin Random House describes as the best-selling true story of the world's most sought-after con man. A true story. So if Frank Abagnale didn't write his own autobiography, then who the hell did? It turns out that Abagnale is pinning the responsibility of writing his book to his co-author Stan Redding, claiming Redding exaggerated some things. Here's a statement posted on Frank Abagnale's website. Quote, I was interviewed by the co-writer only about four times. I believe he did a great job of telling the story, but he also over-dramatized and exaggerated some of the story. That was his style and what the editor wanted. He always reminded me that he was just telling a story and not writing my biography. Unquote. Yeah, yeah. But of course, I have this soundbite from 1993 of Frank Abagnale claiming that he was the author. I, of course... uh Back in 1980, wrote a book called Catch Me If You Can. The book sold a million copies in hardback, never leaving Time Magazine's bestseller list for 15 months. So which is it? Did he or did he not write the book? It's all very confusing. Of course, we know this is BS because we have plenty of video and audio of him bragging about his escapades years before and after the book was published. There's To Tell the Truth, The Johnny Carson Show and his talks at Google, I could go on. So who is Stan Redding, the co-author of Catch Me If You Can? Redding was a veteran reporter for the Houston Chronicle magazine. Redding wrote a profile piece on Abagnale in 1977, three years before Catch Me If You Can ever hit the bookshelves. Let me tell you, the magazine feature on Abagnale was lazy reporting at its best. Redding spewed Abagnale's lies about being a pilot, a doctor, an attorney, a professor, without ever fact-checking to see if any of it was true. Whether he knew it or not, Redding basically helped Abagnale architect the myth. But let's not forget, months earlier, Abagnale was telling these same stories on national television. So I personally don't buy the idea that Redding made this whole thing up. Abagnale is just using him as a scapegoat. But I also don't think that Abagnale constructed this hoax all on his own. The question is, who helped him? Let's go back to Vegas. I only had a few minutes to get my questions out. I didn't do it at that time. And you said you never heard any of the little guys. Did you ever repay the parks or Mark Zinder for his money or anything like that? Uh, Mark Zinder was a former employee of mine who I fired 40 years ago. Uh, he went to and paid a ghostwriter to write a book. Uh, I guess he has hard feelings about that. Uh, he didn't answer my question. 
Did he ever repay Paula Park's parents for stealing from their checkbook or skimming money from Paula's little brother's wallet who was working at a grocery store and didn't even have much money to begin with? Paula Parks told me that her family never saw a red cent from Abagnale. Did he forget? Did it slip his mind? What about his booking agent, Mark Zinder, who almost went under when Abagnale left him high and dry? Or J.R., his ex-girlfriend, who he left bankrupt with all his debt? Or the Swedish family, who he stole from? We can go on. You know, Abagnale famously claims that he repaid all his victims. Here's that very inconvenient 1993 video again. A couple of years ago, I took two and a half million dollars out of my company's profits, and I returned every single penny of it to every airline, hotel, bank, and person that ever lost a dime 15 years earlier. Today, not one soul is out any money from any of the crimes that I committed in my youth. Not one soul. But Paula Parks, Mark Zender, JR, his ex-girlfriend, and every other victim I've spoken to are still waiting for their money. Maybe the check got lost in the mail. Back to my Vegas interview with Abagnale. The situation was getting tense. I got the feeling that I needed to wrap things up before things got ugly. One of the guys in his entourage tapped Frank on his back and started pulling him away. Uh, I hope that I'm judged on what I've done with my life, not what I did with my life 50 years ago. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. I had other questions. Why were you hanging around a kid's summer camp and an orphanage? If you really passed the bar, why aren't there any records of it? Is it lonely, keeping up the lie? Do your kids know you're an imposter? But I figured it was time to go. I quickly started walking towards the emergency exit, but before I could leave, one of the conference organizers stopped me on the way out. Oh, I'm, uh, I registered for the event. I was just covering the event, just different aspects of it for a blog, podcast, you know. Okay, okay. This lady was trembling. Could it be that I caused an unexpected wrinkle at her event? Or was she nervous because she just realized that her company just paid this guy twenty to thirty thousand dollars to lie to their attendees? Uh, just the the approach to Frank Abagnale was a little bit unexpected. Oh, um, so well, I was just asking him. Just yeah, it's just that's something. I was curious about. Yeah, that would be something we'd have to schedule like individually. Oh, okay. Um, oh, so I just thought I would talk to him while I was. Yeah, there. no, I hear you. She grabbed my lanyard and wrote down my name, and that was it. Awesome. Okay, thanks, Javier. Appreciate it. But honestly, asking a con man uncomfortable questions isn't illegal or breaking any rules. I was just a curious conference attendee. I briskly walked down the three flights of stairs, made a right, and pushed open the double doors of the casino. Thank God alarms didn't start blasting. But I wasn't in the clear yet. I still had to make it out of the property, which seemed like a city block long. I crossed the street, entered the Parisian village, and disappeared into the crowd. It was time for my celebratory beer. When we come back, I'm going to talk to the man who arrested Frank Abagnale. What can he tell us about the myth? That's after the break. There are so many tall tales about Frank Abagnale's life that it's almost impossible to keep up. Here's a good one. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, 
that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end, my actions will. Pardon me, did I hear that right? He had three presidents offer him a pardon? Oh, really? Who? He never really does say. By the time I was 21, Interpol in Paris classified me as a master thief. There are only 108 criminals who have ever been given that classification in the world since 1902. Today, there are only six living, and I'm one of them. And at the time, I was the youngest master thief in the world when I was 21. Today, I'm 34 years old and still the youngest master thief in the world. By the way, there's no such list. The funniest feedback I've received so far on the series is, so you're telling me that this con man is lying? Yeah, I know, right? But it's important that we talk about this because this guy isn't a master thief. He's a master manipulator who's contributing to the misinformation that is currently unraveling our democracy. People like Abagnale distort the truth and as a result create two versions of reality. If we can't hold people accountable for lying, then we might as well just hang it up. Here's Jerry Williams, a retired FBI agent, helping me untangle this mess. The other thing that I always was skeptical about was his claim of being the youngest person on the most wanted list. Because as a spokesperson for the FBI, and I, and I did that for five years, I know how hard it is to get on the FBI's most wanted list. I mean, agents fight, you know, and 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 really campaign to get their subjects on the most wanted list because it's a big deal. And the reasons that people are put on the most wanted list are because they pose a threat to society. And so we want to get them captured as soon as possible. But Frank's situation doesn't fall for under either of those. I wish if it was true or not true that there would be somebody from the FBI who would let us know. <laughs> A lot of people have just kind of blindly gone along with his story. And that is probably the most baffling part of this whole story for me. And still today, I mean, I feel like Alan Logan and I have unearthed a lot of documents that prove that he's a fraud. But the only mystery, remaining mystery to me, is that the FBI, I've contacted them. They have yet to, to confirm nor deny that Frank Abagnale has ever worked for them and if he's never worked for them like we suspect he hasn't they should just say it right but they're not the other day i'm sitting on the couch and I'm, I'm, i get a message from an active fbi agent okay who's thanking me for putting the story out he says you know this guy is a fraud and he told me that he actually his boss at the fbi was thinking about hiring frank abagnale to speak at, at an upcoming event. And, and this guy's like, no, this guy's a fraud. Check out this podcast. So there, there's still agents. There are agents in the FBI right now that still buy into his, his myth, you know, the mythology of Frank Abagnale. And I don't understand why. Like The reason is because FBI agents are people too. And so we're just like the rest of the public who saw the movie and have seen him on as a as an ambassador for AARP you know he's their fraud ambassador he's and was at some point one of the hosts of their podcast 
About that, speaking of AARP, I reached out to them to find out if Frank Abagnale is still an ambassador to the organization, and I have yet to receive an official response. But one of my listeners named Stephen Vogel took it upon himself to contact AARP, and they actually got back to him. A communication manager, I don't know if he was going rogue, was able to confirm that Abagnale is no longer an AARP ambassador. They even acknowledged in a recent blog that most of Abagnale's stories have been debunked. It turns out that maybe Frank Abagnale was more of an ambassador <laughs> than an ambassador. Man, that line sounds so much better when you write it. Uh, but back to the FBI. Frank Abagnale says that he doesn't want to be judged by what he did in his youth. He claims he's a changed man and is proud to serve his country by working for the FBI. According to Abagnale, the FBI arrested him. He served time. Then, out of great admiration, the FBI asked him to work undercover for them at an orphanage. Sure, all this sounds very strange, but I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth, so I'll have him explain. So when I finished working undercover, the, the director then simply said, you know what, he needs to go to the academy and teach class so that every agent who comes to the academy, they will, he will be their instructor in one of their courses, and they will all know him. Joe Shea was my supervisor at the FBI after I came out of prison. I answered directly to him. He and I were friends for 30 years until his death. Joe Shea was just one of the three agents who arrested Abagnale after he was busted for cashing 10 bogus payroll checks. He was the inspiration for the Tom Hanks character in the movie. Shea died in 2005, but the other two agents, they may still be alive. I wonder what they remember about the day they arrested Frank Abagnale. If I could get a hold of one or both of these guys, I can finally put to rest some of Abagnale's blatant propaganda. Was there a prolonged chase between Abagnale and the FBI? Was the Bureau looking into the sexual allegations happening at the University of Arizona? Was he really recruited by the FBI? If so, these guys should know. After all, they were the ones who arrested him. The three agents were Joseph Shea, now deceased, Tom McEwen, and Al Brown, all out of the FBI Atlanta division. The two agents, if they're even still around, would be in their 80s. Locating them will be no easy task, but with the help of some friends, I was able to find one of them, retired agent Al Brown. My name is Alan Brown. I go by Al. I'm one of the uh, three FBI agents who arrested Frank Abagnale. Not only was Al Brown one of the agents who arrested Abagnale, he was the one who physically slapped the cuffs on him. This could be huge. The first time I called Al Brown, he wanted to clear it by the FBI first. The reason I was a little hesitant to just talk with you before I heard from pre-pub, they may say, hey, I can't even talk with you. Uh, uh, without uh, their knowledge and approval and without Frank's knowledge and approval. Because I also got to stop in for Frank, uh, uh, Abigail, make sure he has no objection to my talking about him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Clear it by Frank? After that, I stopped the recorder like he requested, and we agreed to circle back after he cleared it by the FBI and Frank Abigail. Why in the world would a former FBI agent have to clear it by the criminal that he arrested? I was floored. What a disappointment. I'm sure I'll never hear back from him again. Frank Abagnale is never going to approve this interview. And the other agent, 
Tom McEwen. I reached out to him and he says that he's having some health problems and doesn't really remember much about the arrest. Oh well, I tried. Gotta move on. Honestly, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast yet or not, but did you know that Frank Abagnale's son is a real FBI agent? Yeah, (laughs) I thought that was just another made-up lie, too. But this part is actually fact. His oldest son, Scott Abagnale, actually has a badge and a gun. Pretty impressive. I wonder what Scott thinks of his father's claims. So I've taught at the academy now for well over 35 years. I taught my son when he went through the academy. Three generations of agents. Does Scott walk around the FBI office with his head hanging low, dying of embarrassment? Or does his dad, in fact, teach every agent that walks through the academy? What does Scott Abagnale really think of his father's past? Does he, too, believe these outrageous stories? Surely not, right? Also, I wonder when he first learned about his father's capers. Frank Abagnale actually spoke about this in the Charleston Home and Design magazine. He said when his oldest son, Scott, turned 10, he handed him a copy of the book Catch Me If You Can and asked him to read it. He told the boy, quote, don't ask me any questions until you finish it, unquote. After his son, Scott, read the book, Frank asked him, quote, do you understand that I am the person in the book, that I did those things? Do you understand what I do today, unquote? And that was it. My son looked at me as his dad, unquote. Wait. I thought he told me in Vegas that he didn't write the book. But anyway, let's hear from Scott Abagnale. This audio is from an episode of the AARP podcast, The Perfect Scam. If you recall, the organization named Frank Abagnale an AARP ambassador. And at one point, Frank was even the co-host of the podcast, The Perfect Scam. Welcome back to AARP's The Perfect Scam. I'm Julie Getz, and with me today is, of course, our AARP ambassador and fraud expert, Frank Abagnale. Frank, it's always so good to see you. Great to be with you, Julie. Thank you. In 2020, The Perfect Scam featured an episode with Frank and his son, Scott. Let's take a listen. We also have a special guest, someone that you know quite well, right? Yes. That's your son, Scott, who is the unit chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiations Unit. The episode focused on virtual kidnappings. Fascinating topic. Scott, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Julie. My pleasure. Scott, before we dive into the details of how the FBI handles kidnappings in the U.S. and abroad, can you please share a bit about your background? How long have you been working for the FBI? I've been with the FBI for a little over 14 years now, Um, and prior to that I was an attorney. I was always interested in working for the FBI, and so when I had the opportunity, uh, I was more than willing to take it. Towards the end of the episode, the host asked Scott about his relationship with his father. Well, it really is a pleasure to have you both here in the studio with us today. It's certainly a very unique and special episode as it's the first time you've ever worked together. Have you guys ever wanted to work together? It'd be neat if we had a reason to, I suppose, but, but we haven't. We really haven't. Um, and uh, this is, I mean, the first time we've even done an interview together uh, about a shared topic we have uh, expertise in. Well, I know our listeners would love to learn more about you both. Scott, when did you first learn about your father's past and how did he explain it to you? It was probably about 10, I think, when I first started hearing about it. And I heard about it from kids at school, actually. Well, honestly, kids were being really uh, disrespectful about it. Um, so yeah, it was basically like getting teased um, in the schoolyard. Um, but uh, in the scheme of things, that never really impacted me. I've never thought uh, I had anything to be ashamed of, nor did my dad, given uh, what all he went yeah. through to get to where he was at the point I was a 10-year-old. So you came home from school. Did you talk to your dad about it? What did he say? Oh, yeah. 
No, he always sat me down and explained where it was coming from. It's very matter of fact. The host then asked Scott about the time his father took him to the FBI Academy when he was 12 years old. Uh, I'd been interested in, in law enforcement like a lot of kids are. Frank, is this how you remember it? Yeah, he, okay. <laughs> he told me that he said, you know, Dad, that's what I'd like to be as an FBI agent. I explained to him it was very difficult back then. The FBI was taking one in every 10,000 applicants. And, and, of course, I always was aware of my background. And I thought to myself, you know, the FBI could look at this in two ways. They could say, well, his dad's done a lot for us. Maybe we should look at his son. Or the FBI could say, no, I don't want his son to be oh, an yeah. FBI agent. But, of course, that's not the way it works. It's always Or maybe the FBI would look at it a third way. Gee, I have this talented, bright, potential agent, but his dad is going around telling people he's a federal agent. Hmm. There is nothing that's happened in my life, and there will be nothing that will happen in my life that was greater than seeing my son become an FBI agent, or more amazing that someone from my background would bring a child into the world and that child turn around and become an FBI agent. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to teach at the academy for almost four decades. I've taught two generations of agents. I taught Scott's class when he went through the academy. He taught his own son. Are you guys Are you guys hearing this? Yeah, I can tell you're very, very proud. How does it make you feel to hear your dad talk about you like this? Well, it obviously really makes you feel good. It also uh, never stops being embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Frank, you taught Scott's class at the FBI Academy. Academy. Tell me what that was like to have Scott in the classroom. Well, what was interesting is that first I got a call from Scott that said, I've been asked if I had a problem with you teaching my class. Oh. And I said, well, do you? And he said, no, I told him that wasn't a problem. And then I got a call saying if I had a problem teaching the class that Scott was in, and I said, no, I don't have a problem doing that. I don't know about you, but I am thoroughly confused. I have to think that Scott Abagnale is an honest dude. I don't know him, but I owe him the benefit of the doubt. Why won't he say something, anything? Blink twice if your dad is lying. But maybe he knows what's up and is just playing along. Until we know conclusively, we'll just have to continue hearing speeches like this. When I went to the FBI 41 years ago, I worked undercover for a long period of time. Then I went into the field and dealt with counterfeits and forgeries, embezzlement, uh, financial crimes. In the last 20 years, I've dealt with only cyber-related uh, crimes. So I spend most of my time with breaches. I have worked every breach back to TJ Maxx 15 years ago. So does Frank Abagnale really work for the FBI? I want to say he doesn't, but I really don't know. I don't think he does. I just can't prove it. My fact checker, Kate, reached out to the FBI with a simple yes or no question. Frank Abagnale told the Star Tribune in Minneapolis that he is an ethics instructor at the FBI Academy. Is this true? Yes or no? The FBI Media Relations Department immediately responded with a promise to get back to us. Finally, we'll know once and for all if Frank Abagnale Jr. works for the FBI. We waited weeks without a proper response, and honestly, <laughs> I was getting the feeling that they might be ghosting us. But weeks later, completely out of the blue, the FBI responds to Kate. They said, hi, Kate, do you have a telephone I could call you on? Whoa, they have an answer that is so explosive that they can't even put their response in an email. So Kate picks up the phone and takes their call. They basically said, quote, this all comes down to semantics. Semantics? Either he's on the payroll or he's not. 
Denise Ballou from the FBI press office said that training division did confirm that Frank Abagnale has been a guest speaker, but she couldn't say how many times. Could be once, could be hundreds of times. He's been a speaker, meaning he's spoken, he's relayed information, therefore he instructed, but he isn't an instructor. You see, it's all semantics. And also, the FBI can't confirm what Abagnale said in interviews, or that the reporter took what he said the right way, so she can't confirm third or fourth party information. When asked if Frank Abagnale ever received a paycheck, the press officer said, quote, I don't think the FBI would ever say if someone got a paycheck. That would need to go through the ethics and payroll department. Kate also asked if they would be willing to be interviewed for this episode. The FBI declined and said that the Bureau won't do interviews or follow-up questions with me, Javier. So, to sum up, the FBI can neither confirm nor deny Frank Abagnale's employment with the agency. Seriously, what did I expect? It's hard not getting discouraged. They could have said, yes, Frank Abagnale has been working for us. And I would have said, egg on my face. Maybe the con man has turned the corner. But they could have also gone the other way and put this ridiculous idea that this man is a federal agent to rest. Let me remind you that he's built a very lucrative career based on his experience with the FBI. It's the legitimacy that companies look for when they ask him to join their board or give him $30,000 for a speech at one of their events. But the Bureau didn't do that. And honestly, it's not a good look. But damn, does this guy really work for the FBI? I mean, if only I could talk to former agent Al Brown, you know, the guy who arrested Abagnale back in the day. But that's a long shot because he has to get approval from Frank Abagnale first. That's never going to happen. <laughs> but guess what? Al Brown got back to me and he said that both the FBI and Frank Abagnale gave him the all clear. My conversation with retired agent Al Brown is right after the break. I scored an interview with the arresting FBI agent. Al Brown has never spoken to the media about this before. He has the potential of blowing this case wide open. You were the guy who slapped the handcuffs on Frank Abagnale. I mean, how, what was uh, yeah, that day was, like? Yeah. Well, yeah, there were three of us, three agents. And the senior agent to me was Joe Shea. And of course, his part was played by Tom Hanks in the movie, Catch Me If You Can. And then we had a new agent from Atlanta that came out to help us on the arrest, Tom McEwen. And I was a second office agent. We covered the area in Smyrna, Georgia, where, where Frank Abagnale was staying at a hotel called the Squire Inn. But, 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 before you get too excited, some of you may remember the 1986 two-hour primetime special called The Mysteries of Al Capone's Vaults. Is hosted by Geraldo Rivera. 30 million Americans glued to their television sets watched as Geraldo Rivera and an excavation crew cracked open a sealed-off underground room at the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the old Lexington Hotel, where 60 years ago, during the height of the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition, this once lavish building belonged or was the headquarters for the notorious gangster Al Capone. Directly beneath me... In this what was behind the wall? 
Could there be a treasure? Dead bodies? You really can't appreciate the amount of hype surrounding this event. Finally, after two hours of waiting, the dynamite finally went off. And when the vault was finally opened, the only thing found inside was a bunch of dirt and empty bottles. And the reason why I'm digging up this colossal letdown is because my interview with retired agent Al Brown is pretty much Geraldo Rivera's mystery of Al Capone's vault. I anticipated this big game changer interview, but instead it turns out to be a pile of rubble. Here's why. Okay, guys, let's do it. Much like Capone's vault, Al Brown's arrest of Frank Abagnale was pretty uneventful. I'll let Al Brown explain. Uh, the, the communication said, hey, Frank uh, Abagnale is uh, staying, according to our information, he's staying at the Squire Inn in Smyrna, Georgia. Go get it. So it was just a, a routine white-collar arrest for us at the time. You know, he was not notorious, not known, and certainly not armed and dangerous. Uh, but he was what we referred to as a white-collar criminal. That's basically it. Al Brown wasn't chasing Frank Abagnale for years, months, not even weeks. He basically got a call from the New York field office. They said, hey, go pick up this con man who's staying in a motel down in Georgia. And that was it. And that's what he did. The chase lasted as long as Geraldo Rivera's commercial break of his Al Capone vault special. Womp womp. But forget the Abagnale case. I wanted to know why this former agent needed to get approval from Frank Abagnale. And what did Abagnale say when he asked for permission? Hey, you know, last time we spoke, you said that you wanted to do the interview, but you had to kind of check first. Well, yeah, I wanted to get the green light approval from the FBI pre-publication people. And I thought also I would check with Frank Abagnale to make sure he didn't have any objections. And I called him and his office approved uh, my speaking with you. For pre-pub, FBI stated that due to the notoriety of the case and the extensive amount of public awareness, they had no objection to my interviewing with you. But any views and opinions are those of mine only and not that of any government agency. And then any, I'd like to say also for your information, Javier, that anything I say, any comments about Frank Abagnale will be only those about which I personally, you know, have personal knowledge of and there would be no conjectures on my part. That's it. Yeah. And that's all we want to talk about. What I want to cover here is, like you said, the facts. I want to make sure that I just want to cover exactly what you experienced, the actual arrest, because that's a big deal. Only want the facts. Now that we got that out of the way, I asked Brown to explain what happened the day of the arrest. Well, the motel was just in the Squire Inn. It's a fairly, it's a fairly large motel. But in his closet was hanging his Pan American uh, uniform with the three stripes. We I put the cuffs on him, and uh, it was just a routine arrest. Took him to the Cobb County Jail in Marietta because they they hold federal uh, hold federal prisoners for us. And that was it. It was uh, just a routine arrest. And what did you know? Uh, did you know any details about the check fraud or, or the crimes that he had committed? As a matter of fact, no, we did not, because uh, as I stated earlier, he certainly wasn't famous or notorious at the time. There was no movie done, and that, that came sometime later. So all we knew is the background that New York furnished us. We do know that the New York office was looking into Abagnale's whereabouts, but the feds contacted Paul Holson after the incident where Abagnale was accused of performing physicals on young University of Arizona co-eds. And he was also wanted for those bad payroll checks just three months prior. 
It's a tall order to ask Al Brown about a case that happened more than 40 years ago and that really, really had no significance. I mean, he simply got a call, drove over to a motel, and arrested a small-time swindler and probably went to lunch afterwards. It was pretty uneventful. The most surprising thing about the whole interview is the fact that Al Brown actually buys into Frank Abagnale's mythology. Listen to this. So I don't recall the detail on it. Right. I'm sure they gave us some basic detail that he was a con artist and he passed checks all over the world, that he flew jump seat with Pan Am, that he, uh, you know, uh, impersonated different people, including a doctor and a lawyer. I've asked Al Brown to listen to my reporting, to read Alan Logan's book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, or to simply look at the Frank Abagnale Wikipedia page. The facts are in plain sight, but yet he doesn't want to believe. And part of me gets that. At first, I didn't want to believe. If Frank Abagnale's story is true, then surely Al Brown would remember going after a con artist who stole $2.5 million. That's a lot of money back then. $2.5 million is worth $24 million today. Well, I mean, I would imagine that if they told you the dollar amount, it, one of these will jump at you, right? Because he says that it was $2.5 million in bad checks, but in reality... It was only a thousand five hundred. So, what was it closer to a thousand five hundred, or was it closer to two point five million dollars? Well, again, I don't have personal knowledge because I didn't see them. I wasn't with him. But from what I knew and what I, you know, learned, and, and what I read later, uh, it was a whole lot more than fifteen hundred dollars because then he did it all over the world. So, again, I don't have the exact numbers. I can't give you the numbers, but I'd be willing to bet. It's a substantial amount of money. But honestly, the only facts that Al Brown knows, without conjecture, is that he arrested Frank Abagnale. That's it. The rest of the details have been contaminated throughout the years with a pervasive story we've all been led to believe. When asked if Abagnale works for the FBI, here's what Al Brown had to say. Did He definitely has lectured at the FBI Academy to new agents. That I can tell oh, yeah. you. He does that pro, and he does that pro bono. I saw somewhere where somebody said he was an undercover agent. I've never heard that before at all. And he certainly has never told me that or made yeah. any statements like that. Well, let's so, talk about that. Let's go back to the FBI things. You, you, you've mentioned that he's meant that he's made claims that he's worked undercover. But I mean, according to Frank Abagnale, I could pull like quote after quote after quote. He says that after you guys arrested him, you, you respected his work as a criminal so much that that the FBI recruited him right out of prison to work for the FBI. And he's been working for the FBI, according to him, for the last 43, 45 years. How much of that is true? I have no I have no personal knowledge as to when what period the bureau so-called re recruited him. I don't know that they recruit him because he's not been on the payroll that I'm aware of. But so I don't I can't tell you when when he started or, or what the situation was. But I do know that he lectures and he still does, as far as I know, on a number of occasions at the FBI Academy, new agents in Quantico about, you know, cyber, uh, the, the stuff that he's fully aware of and how to avoid and trying to teach them how to handle some of these white collar crimes. As far as I know, he, he's not on the payroll and does not charge for this, this service. So he does speak at the FBI, but there is a big difference between uh, occasionally being a speaker at the FBI and then working for the FBI 
teaching ethics classes for the last 40 years. Uh, that, that, those are two different things, right? I saw that in some of the writing somewhere that, uh, again, no personal knowledge that he ever taught ethics classes for 40 years. I just know that he does lecture and has lectured. I don't know what period. And the, the guy from the NSA told me that Frank Abagnale told him that he was a supervisory special agent. I mean, that's more than just uh, an occasional guest speaker, you know? Well, yeah, well, again, I can't I can't speak to that at all. He has right. never made any statements like that to me. Never. Yeah. Not even it, re remotely near that. Nothing. Right. Nothing. But if, if I were to play you like a soundbite of him saying these kinds of things, would as a as a professional, as somebody who has a really, you know, has retired from the FBI, has a, a a, a career that you should be very proud of. I mean, does that kind of bother you a little bit that some guy could be going around pretending that he's an FBI agent? Well, again, with no personal knowledge that he really did that, I, I, I can't, I can't specify either way. So I can't say that it would bother me because I don't know that to be true. And Frank, over the years, I, this is a fact. He has appeared pro bono as a speaker and, and consultant at many FBI and other government events in addition to what he does as a consultant, you know, for a living. Yeah. And when he appears, he charges nothing as a, as a fe featured speaker. But he, yeah. at my request, he appeared in September, I think it was, 21 last year, as our featured speaker at an FBI retired pilots uh, convention in Nashville. And I said, hey, Frank, we're going to pay all your, your fee and your expenses. No, he said, I'll do this on my uh, strictly pro bono. I don't charge the government anything. So no. I haven't seen that written anywhere else. No, yeah. and we'll, we'll definitely mention that because that is very generous considering that he charges twenty to $30,000, you know, and that doesn't even include the travel costs. So that's really generous of him to do that. Extremely so, and exactly. And I said, "Hey, if you don't, you don't want to take the fee. How about your hotel expenses? Nope, I covered all." In a way, I could kind of see him going to Nashville for free, speaking to the the retired FBI airline pilots for free, and and doing all these other FBI events for free as a way to say to validate his his work with the FBI. So in a way, it almost seems like that he could kind of be using you, you know, as a prop, taking you to the movie set, you know, like he's saying, look, look who I'm hanging out with. These are real FBI agents. And so when he goes around telling people that he's an FBI agent, it kind of adds to his credibility, right? Well, I, again, I cannot speak about, you know, I can only know what I, what I know for a fact myself. So I'd, I'd be conjecture on my part, you know, right. as far as, whether or not he's using this, I've never had that feeling. I really don't. I really think he likes he does this because he feels that he owes it for whatever reason to society to do that. I I personally don't think he's using doing that just to use us. That's an opinion which I said I didn't want to do. Javier, I never ever thought that he was using us. I really didn't. Right. I still don't to this day. And that was like I said. That was just a routine arrest. We averaged like thirty, forty. A year in those days, you know, and that, so I, I can't give you a whole lot of details. You know where Frank Abagnale was when he was supposedly recruited by the FBI? He was at a kid's summer camp in Texas, and he was found guilty of stealing from a kid's camp and doing all sorts of stuff while he was on parole. So I, I'm just wondering why the FBI would would uh, get this guy on their team. <laughs>
Well, again, I have no knowledge of that one. I'm no, sorry. and that's fair. That's fair because I'm asking you questions yeah. that that it's almost a, a little unfair because all you really did was you you arrested this guy, and and it and that Basically, your interaction I'm, with him only lasted a, a couple hours, but, right? Couple, you got it right. That couple hours. You know. I'm glad you checked with him though, because and I'm glad that uh, he let you do this interview too, because I think that it's good to have somebody like you um, speak highly of him, because you know not a lot of people have been speaking highly of him, so it's nice to get a different point of view. Well, my only my only connection with him has been since we arrested him has been positive. So we'll leave it at that. Maybe it's true. Frank Abagnale was personally handpicked by the FBI director to go on a secret mission in New Mexico. Maybe he did infiltrate a secret military base to disable missiles. And perhaps the FBI was sending undercover informants into an orphanage to spy on kids who have no parents. Hey, you know what? Stranger things have happened. For now, we're going to move on to the next chapter in Abagnale's life. But this time, we're actually going to go way back. I mean, way, way back to his childhood. It turns out that the apple may not fall far from the tree. I spoke with Frank Abagnale's niece, who reached out to us to uncover a dark family secret. You won't believe what we found out. That's next time on Pretend. All right, that was episode six. Episode seven is coming real soon. And as soon as it is ready, I'm going to drop it on Patreon. My Patreon supporters always get first dibs on episodes. They get extra bonus episodes. They get swag. If you haven't checked out my Patreon page, go to pretendradio.org slash donate and help support the show. And by supporting the show, you get really cool stuff. This Abagnale series has... Tons of bonus material that cannot make it on the actual feed. So check it out. It is really cool. I also use the platform to communicate with all my listeners. In fact, I'm going to extend this to beyond my Patreon supporters. If you have some thoughts about this story, which I am sure you have plenty of thoughts, send me a voice memo at Javier at pretendradio.org and I'll play it during the last episode. I promise I want to hear from you and I'm sure we're all thinking the same thing. And did you know that on September 12th, which by the time this airs, it would have already passed, but Xavier University is hosting Heroes of Professional Ethics Lecture. Now, out of all the ethical experts out there, who do you think that they chose to be their guest speaker? Yep, you guessed it. Frank Abagnale. Jr. Now, having Frank Abagnale speak at a professional ethics lecture is like having Genghis Khan teach an anger management class. I am just dumbstruck. Anyway, we got a lot more to cover. I am so grateful for everyone who's listening. Remember, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, you know, all all those things, at PretendPod. I have some Twitter videos, Instagram reels that I'm working to show how this adventure unfolded, and I, I think you'll like it. Oh, yeah, and you can see the full confrontation video on my YouTube channel. Just search for Pretend Podcast. All right, guys. 
Thanks a lot. We'll talk in two weeks. Take care. Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings. Exorcism. There's stages of demonic attack. She was perhaps the most severe. It was nightmarish. Money laundering. Mexican drug cartels. Biker gangs in Australia. There are professional money launderers who um, have clients all over the world. Graphology. I can look at somebody's handwriting and I can analyze their character. Private wrestling. He wanted me to run over his penis with my car exploration it's known as the savage mountain in comparison to everest i mean everest kind of feels like disneyland every week on profoundly pointless we explore something new showcasing a side of life you may never have even heard of listen to profoundly pointless wherever you listen to podcasts and that's wherever like wherever you listen not wherever like we don't know where they are Creative Babble.